Hello, Roy here. I just wanted to let you know that you can listen to The Roy Green Show ad-free on Amazon Music, included with Prime. You're only as good as your word, and he stands by his. This is The Roy Green Show. It has been the uh, subject that's been talked about probably more than anything else globally. And that is uh, gun ownership. And, of course, it all st- stems from the horrific shooting in Florida, the high school. And and then the gun ownership issue in the United States. And everybody has an opinion on that. And it's created quite a bit of turmoil in the U.S. and the National Rifle Association. And some corporations have ceased doing business with the NRA or reduced to how much business they do with the NRA. And some politicians are saying they're going to change the rules as to who can buy what and how as far as guns are concerned. But in Canada, firearms are also an issue. And in the next hour, Scott New York is going to be with us because in uh, Okotoks, Alberta, a rancher fired shots, allegedly, at invaders of his property. And he hit one of them, allegedly, in his alleged arm. And uh, now the rancher is facing three criminal charges, which, according to stories I've read, including in the Calgary Herald, uh, is upsetting other ranchers in the area because they feel they shouldn't be charged. It takes forever for the police to get out there where they live, and to protect yourself should be your right. And I agree with that. It is your right, should be your right, to protect yourself. And um, if you use a firearm to protect your family and to protect your life, to have the... uh, Authorities come in the cold, gray dawn of the morning after and not be there when the crisis erupts and have them just come in and say, well, you used a gun, you wasn't supposed to, so we're going to criminally charge you, and you can end up in prison for longer than the assailant, alleged assailant. There's something significantly wrong, so we're going to talk about that with Scott Newark, who used to be a Crown Attorney in, uh, in Alberta and Executive Director of the Canadian Police Association, and we'll take your calls on that issue. So we'll do that next hour, along with some other issues I want Scott to talk to as, as an, uh, an international expert on security and terrorism. He advises both the federal and Ontario governments on those issues. Now, there's an election coming up on the 18th of March, and Vladimir Putin is running for re-election as president of Russia. I don't think there's much of a chance that he's not going to win. But Mr. Putin, just a couple of days ago sort of played the tough guy as he unveiled, as it were, an entirely new generation of Russian nuclear weapons, which he says would completely neutralize any American defenses against nuclear weapons. He's also threatened that anyone who attacks any country that is allied or friendly to Russia is going to be uh, dealt with as though they had attacked Russia. So that's pretty tough talk from Vladimir Putin. Colonel Peter Mansour was an officer with the U.S. tank regiments in Germany. He faced Soviet troops in the 1980s. He was a brigade commander, 1st Armored Division, uh, was when it was deployed in Iraq, and later became the executive officer to General David Petraeus. He's the author of Surge, My Journey with General David Petraeus and the Remaking of the Iraq War. Colonel Mansour, thank you for the time. And what's your view of Vladimir 
Putin. What do you think of him? Well, he is, um, uh, you know, what he grew up to be. He was a KGB agent, um, a Russian nationalist, and uh, he overtly says that the uh, the worst thing that ever happened to Russia was the breakup of the Soviet Union. And so part of his policy is to try to uh, uh, regain uh, Russian stature as a, as a global power. And um, he t- talks tough, and uh, the Russian people generally like him, like that. They, uh, he is uh, fairly popular, even though he is uh, robbing uh, the people of Russia of just about everything they own. Does he have what it takes, and I'm talking emotionally now before we talk about material that he may have available to him, does he have what it takes to back up the boasts and the threats? Well, it's unclear. Um, Clearly, Russia has great scientific talent, but it has fairly limited resources. Uh, Its economy is one-fifteenth the size of the United States. Um, It is not a great power when it comes to uh, economic matters, but if you focus what uh, wherewithal it does have on uh, the creation of a new generation of weapons, then uh, I think it's eminently possible that um, Russia could develop these new nuclear weapons. The, um, the five that he mentioned in his recent speech, uh, it's pretty unclear whether they're actual weapons or if they're still in the design stage or if he's just bluffing. So what can these weapons supposedly do uh, to evade uh, anti-nuke uh, missiles from, from, from the U.S.? Well, precisely. This is what uh, Putin says. He uh, ordered the Russian uh, industrial uh, plants and, and industries and uh, defense industries to produce a generation of nuclear weapons and delivery systems that could evade U.S. anti-ballistic missile uh, weapons because the United States withdrew from the anti-ballistic missile treaty uh, a decade and a half ago under President George W. Bush, and this has rankled Russia ever since, even though it, it was intended to create missile defenses against uh, medium powers like uh, Iran and North Korea. But anyway, so uh, he claims that uh, they have now a nuclear cruise missile that can basically fly globally, uh, be programmed to evade missile defense systems, and um, it would fly at very low level uh, but it wouldn't be limited by the amount of fuel it carried because it would have a nuclear reactor on board. This would be highly polluting as well. Uh, he didn't mention that. Um, there's a new intercontinental ballistic missile, and it would carry a new hypersonic glide vehicle, which could be autonomously targeted and flies at about five times the speed of sound uh, so fast that uh, anti-ballistic missiles couldn't catch it. And at the same su- time they have a new hypersonic cruise missile uh, same concept although it would be carried by an airplane close to its target but would fly again five times the speed of sound or so uh, so that anti-ballistic missiles couldn't hit it and finally he claims that they've developed a nuclear torpedo again it would have unlimited range because it would have a nuclear plant on board uh, and it would carry nuclear weapons to coastal targets um, and uh, would be very hard to detect. Are you buying any of that? I buy some of it. The United States and uh, other powers have been working on hypersonic glide vehicles for quite some time now. Um, The United States in the 1960s sort of dabbled with uh, creating missiles that had nuclear plants on board and then abandoned the project as as not very feasible. Uh, 
uh, even with the um, improvements in, in nuclear technology, it's very hard to miniaturize a nuclear plant to the point where it can be put inside a, uh, a cruise missile, for instance. Um, and it would lack all the shielding that modern nuclear uh, reactors have, which me- means it would emit lots and lots of radiation that would pollute anything it flies over. So this is a worldwide problem and not just a U.S.-Russia problem if they've actually developed these devices. Should we be concerned? You know how it used to be during the Cold War. There would be talk about new weapons or new systems or new defenses, and we'd absorb it pretty much the same way we absorb in the middle of winter a forecast of three to four inches of snow. It's worth noting, but it's not going to be a big deal. In Canada, um, you call that Tuesday, right? Yeah, exactly. Yeah. <laughs> um, in Ohio as well, I would add. Yeah, yeah. So, yeah. so um, you know, provided that, that Russia can't uh, create a first strike capability, then I think this is a non-issue. Uh, but if these uh, new, new weapons uh, were uh, created such that Russia had the capability to destroy all U.S. land-based missiles, and air bases um, uh, in a relatively short period of time, the only counter we would have then is, is whatever um, uh, nuclear s- submarines we would have at sea, uh, and the retaliation would have to be against uh, Russian cities, and that would lead to nuclear Armageddon. Mm-hmm. Um, that is the danger, that this would give Russia some sort of unfair, no, I wouldn't say unfair, but a strategic edge um, in a nuclear conflict, uh, which is why the Trump administration is saying we're going to spend lots and lots of money in the next 20, 30 years to upgrade the U.S. nuclear arsenal so that we are not left behind in what appears to be, unfortunately, a new arms race. You know, uh, we're 16 days away or 15 days away from the Russian election, and I don't know how much of what was announced a few days ago is electioneering and how much of it, as you've said, is, uh, is, is potentially fact. But you faced Soviet troops when you were in West Germany. Uh, is, is it a more dangerous time today than it was during the Cold War? It was the Soviet Union versus essentially versus NATO or versus the United States. Now there's so many other small players involved globally with who knows what their potential is. Is, is. is the world more dangerous now than it would have been in the 60s, 70s, and 80s? Um, it's more dangerous only in the sense that um, the chance of miscalculation is higher. Uh, the United States and the Soviet Union back in the Cold War knew their adversary. Uh, they studied them intense, intently. They knew the signals that each other uh, would send and how to react to them. Uh, with the exception of the Cuban Missile Crisis, which was probably the the most deadly uh, crisis the, the Earth has ever faced. Um, but by and large, it was a stable, uh, stable uh, adversarial conflict. Today, we have all sorts of new actors, uh, potential nuclear actors like Iran, uh, actual nuclear actors like North Korea and Pakistan, and uh, the chance for miscalculation is really, really high. Now, having said that, uh, the Russia and these other powers, North Korea, Iran, and so forth, are a fraction, uh, uh, have a fraction of the power that the old Soviet Union had, um, and the United States and its NATO allies uh, would dwarf their capabilities in any sort of conflict, but uh, that doesn't mean it could still be very, very deadly and, and bloody. 
Well, the 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 repeat thought that I've had is that the more of these regional conflicts that uh, show up, and the more we hear people like like uh, Kim Jong Un in North Korea, or you know, eagle maniacs who want to be part of the big boys club and and threaten with their nukes. The more we have these sorts of scenarios developing, the more the the uh, the picture becomes less focused. And I suppose that you just said that in a more elegant way than I was able to. But. Well, that's I think that's precisely the case. And we have a president now in Washington who uh, shoots from the hip, uh, is uh, erratic in his own way, and uh, it that that sort of miscalculation uh, verbally in in uh, the diplomatic sphere could lead to some sort of military confrontation pretty quickly these things sort of escalate rapidly um, and it, it is i think very dangerous today these sorts of um, uh, smaller conflicts around the globe but smaller is is uh, a matter of uh, you know uh, judgment because north korea has the capability to destroy entire cities with its nuclear uh, bombs. So these are still very, very deadly um, uh, engagements that the United States and its allies face around the world. Colonel Mansour, I have one more question for you. Uh, Your book is Surge, My Journey with General David Petraeus and the Remaking of the Iraq War, and it's a tremendous read. Um, As you look at the Middle East now and what's happening there, uh, are you more or less optimistic about the situation coming under some level of control. There, there's some talk that President Trump might be preparing to uh, support statehood for Palestine. Uh, how do you view that, the, the region now? Well, there's, <clears throat> there's some progress. Uh, ISIS, uh, the Islamic State, was wiped off the map, and Iraq appears to be stabilizing, at least temporarily, whether it can stabilize in the long haul and re-knit the... Uh, the societal fabric back together remains to be seen, but, that, but that's good news. Um, Syria, unfortunately, has just entered a new stage of its civil war. ISIS is gone, but, but now you have regional and global actors vying for longer-term gains, and um, that is leading to new conflicts with Turkey invading northern Iraq, the Kurds fighting uh, the Turks and the Syrians, uh, Russia and Iran involved as they have been for quite some time now, and the United States sort of caught up uh, in the middle of it all. Um, you know, with the Iran-Israel-Palestine uh, uh, conflict, it, um, it's pretty tough to see a, a way ahead there uh, diplomatically when each side really is uh, unwilling to recognize uh, the other. And uh, it's, it's very, very tough, I think, uh, at this point to, to see an end game there. And anything that the U.S. administration does, like recognize Jerusalem as the capital of Israel, seems to make matters worse, uh, not better. So uh, lots of different things happening in the Middle East, um, most of them uh, making the area more confusing, uh, but some progress as well, particularly in the war against ISIS. The book is Surge, My Journey with General David Petraeus and the Remaking of the Iraq War by Colonel Peter Mansour. Colonel, thank you very much for the time. It's always uh, informative and illuminating to talk to you. Thanks, Roy. It's always a pleasure. Take care. Colonel Peter Mansour. And the book is a great read. It really is. My journey with General David Petraeus and the remaking of the Iraq War surge. We will come back.
right after this. 